so this is the last Sunday of 2019. Can you believe it? I mean, where has the time gone? I, I, I don't know. Tuesday night, we're done. 2019, the books are closed. Who would have thought it? I, I think it's amazing how our perspectives on time change as we age and as, we, as time goes on, how things different, uh, are different for us. I can remember, <laughs> I remember back in 1970 how far away high school graduation seemed. You know, I seem like I'd never get to 1972 and graduate from high school. Now, I know some of you go, 1972, high school? That guy's old. Well, okay. I, I did get my Medicare card this year, so, you know, I guess I'm, you know. Anyway, 1972, it seemed like graduation would never come. It seemed like it was a long way away. It seemed like, you know, all of life uh, lay out in front of me and, and that, uh, you know, college and marriage and all that stuff, you know, that life is made of was just like way out there. My freshman year in college, I remember, you know, having that feeling especially, you know, one of those never arriving things. I was married in 1978, not that far after high school graduation when you think about it. Then uh, at that point, I was already in seminary, and at that point, seminary graduation and ministry and, and life with my wife and children seemed like a long way away, and like, um, you know, things were just kind of getting started. I can remember ministry in a couple of places, and, and remember when 1999 came, the end of 1999, the year 2000. Oh my goodness, the world's going to cave in on itself because some computer somewhere is going to you know, not be able to change the date and, you know, all of the doomsday predictions and all that. Doesn't seem that long ago, does it? Just think about the history of the computer, for that matter. For those of you who are younger, uh, you know, they used to, the computers used to run, instead of on a hard drive, they, would, they actually would run on a cassette tape. I'm not kidding. The, the memory for my Commodore 64 was a cassette tape, okay? <laughs> you know, and uh, I think what was the first computer? An 8088, I think, was a pretty fast computer back in those days. Well, those times have changed. Time keeps on moving ahead, moving ahead quickly. You know, um, it's, just, it's just amazing to me. So I've been thinking about, obviously, as you come up on the year's end, you tend to think about how you spent your year, what things have been good, what things have been hard, what things have been successes, what things have been failures, and that kind of thing. And, and just consider those things personally in your own life. And, and so I've been thinking about that. What kind of foundations have I laid in my life? You know? Louder? Jimmy, can you bump me a touch? Um, what, are the, what, are the, what are the things in my life that uh, are the cornerstones of life? What are, the, um, what are the things that I would call Ebenezer's? You know, that's too much. Just, just, I was starting to feed back there if we don't. Uh, what are the superstructures that I built on top of the foundations that I've laid? Have you ever thought about that? You know, you think about those early years of your life and, and you think about laying a good foundation and that kind of thing, but do you, have you thought about what you're building on top of that? Kind of what's, what does legacy look like in that kind of thing? 
Um, you know, what do you value? Um, are the things that I value simply things? Or are they relationships? What's more valuable in life? Um, you know, what, what are the things that I'm going to carry into eternity with me? What are those things? What does that look like? What legacy have I built out of my love for Christ? So I want to ask you this morning to do a little self-thought, a little self-searching, and, and look for a minute and think about, for just a minute, what are your foundations? And then think for a minute, what's the superstructure that you've built on, in light of the gospel, in light of uh, what Paul is laying out for us this morning in Galatians chapter 6? We're going to pick back up in Galatians, and we're going to finish out the book of Galatians. Uh, so for the next several weeks, we'll be preaching through Galatians. There is serious discussion about preaching through the book of Deuteronomy uh, to follow uh, the book of Galatians, okay? So just be forewarned uh, that that's what David and I are talking about, and we're beginning to um, not only discuss that, but to read and to sketch out some ideas, and uh, we'll break that out over the next several weeks. Um, and, uh, but I think we're going to go to Deuteronomy. This morning, we're in Galatians chapter 6. I want to pick up in verse 1 and read through verse 5. And I really hope to help you answer the question that we really ought to be asking ourselves at the end of the year. What is true spirituality? Somebody bumped ahead there too fast. Slow it down there, Hoss. Um, what is true spirituality? What, what, what does it mean? How does it work itself out in my, my life and in relationships? Okay? Let's read the Word of God and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But it, let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let's pray. Father, I ask you this morning to take the words of this text, to take the words that the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write and to help us today to understand them. Help us not only to, to mentally be able to comprehend what they say, but Father, help us to see them with the eyes of spiritual insight. That we would examine ourselves, that we would think about what spiritual, true spirituality really is, what it means to live for the glory of God. Lord, help us today to understand and to, to live out the truths that you lay before us. I pray that you would be with me, that you would enable me to communicate the things that you've put on my heart, that the word would be clear in Jesus' name, amen. So I think Paul would say to us this morning that true spirituality arises out of a grace-based relationship with God. Now we're on track with the slides. Um, that, that that's where the, the, the source of true spirituality comes from. 
out of a grace-based relationship with God. In fact, if you, would, if you want to take a moment and jot that down, that's kind of going to be the, the, the governing thought uh, that I'm going to work around this morning as we open up this text. True spirituality arises out of a grace-based relationship with God. It's, it's defined by God. Our relationship is something that God defines for us. It flows from his spirit to us. To the flesh, the spirit's way is weak. It's ineffective. Where the law's way deals harshly, uh, condemning those who stumble, um, uh, distancing others out of a sense of of failure and everything else. Uh, The spirit's way is marked with gentleness and understanding and with grace. You see, as Paul was writing the Galatian church, and as the book of Galatians has been uh, loved and and cherished by the church throughout the ages since the book uh, was written, there have been those who have been critical of Galatians and of the apostle Paul because they say that what Paul does here is Paul creates a circumstance that, that makes Christians lazy because if we talk about grace all the time if we talk about living out of a relationship to god that's that's laid in foundation in grace then christians aren't obligated to do what they ought to do and they become lazy the the logic is kind of like this holiness advances by hard labor you got to work at it you got to struggle to be more holy and so the horses need to be whipped to keep them running you know have you watched them uh, doing the little uh, Surrey runs out on the uh, corner 44A down there? You know, do they whip those horses all the time to keep them moving? They really don't, do they? But that's the way a law-based idea goes. Fear seems to be a better motivator than grace. So I want to just pause there for a second. What's your relationship with God really built on? When it comes down to it, how do you feel about God? How do you feel about that? Really and truly, how do you feel about your relationship with God? Is the foundation of faith for you something that you have to work really, really, really hard to do? To to, to keep your relationship right with God, to please God, to, to, to ever hope that you'll see um, your heavenly reward, your heavenly Father's smile? Are, are you working hard to be obedient? Are you straining to, to keep the law, to, to do the things that, that you know you ought to do? Are you making rules for yourself and, and maybe for others to keep so that they can be holy and so that you can be holy and, and so that you can... Is your day spent in guilt because you aren't good enough? do you spend your life in shame because you say to yourself i failed again i'll never succeed i continue to fail over and over and over again and when you look back at the end of 2019 you give yourself a grade and the grade you give yourself depends on how low your self-esteem is but it's either a d or an f you know i would think an f would be like a total wipeout But a D, you know, well, I fail over and over again. I am never righteous. I am never holy. Are you living that way? 
Is that the way your relationship with God is, is, is built? You see, Paul is taking the Galatians in chapter 6 back to, the, back to the foundations, back to look at their lives, and he's telling them, if we're really building our spiritual lives and our human relationships on the grace of the gospel, then it's going to be marked by an increase in the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And that's what he's just talked about in chapter 5. Remember, Paul talks about the, the fruit, the, the, the deeds of the flesh, the works of the flesh, and then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Uh, against such things there is no law. By the way, I don't think that we just get one or two of those fruit. I think that's just a character, character, characterization of what our lives are like. That we have all of those fruit of the Spirit working in us at different times. Paul's taking them back. He's asking them to say, to think about, to consider whether or not they're growing in Christ. So I told you this week we've had the grandkids with us, and one of the things that, that I find fun to do is I have a four-wheeler, and um, I use it out here when we do the Pop Warner, you know, to throw bottle, uh, water bottles out to the football players and things. And um, Anyway, I love to take the four-wheeler out and throw the kids on the back of the four-wheeler and ride them around the backyard. And you know, There's a lot of laughter, and we have a lot of fun doing that. And so this year I thought, well, okay, well, let's do that. And, but I haven't started it in a while. And uh, so I uncovered my four-wheeler, and, and I got on it, and I cranked it, and I cranked and cranked and cranked, and then it fired off, but it was running terrible. I mean, it was like it would crank, and it would run, and then it would go and die. You know, I did that four, five, six times, and I'm pretty frustrated with that. You know, I'm going, dang it. And uh, so I think, well, okay, what, what's wrong with this thing? And I diagnosed my problem. I, I think, you know, that gas has got water in it. I know that's what it is. It's moisture in the gasoline. So I siphon the gas out, put fresh gas in. I put a little uh, STP kind of uh, gas uh, thing in to uh, uh, help dissolve the water in the gasoline, crank it up, it still runs stinky. I mean, it's just not running right at all. I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about my own life. And I, I think as believers, we kind of slip into the stupor of imagining that um, all we have to do for our lives is maybe change the gas and add a little additive here and there, maybe a little additive of religious works, and, and we put in the gasoline of grace, uh, and, um, you know, uh, then everything's going to be okay. I don't think that's the way it works. The sad thing about it is you can scour the New Testament. You can scour the epistles. In particular, you can look at the pastoral epistles uh, for every moral requirement that God would lay on us and every religious condition that we can find in order to slap some kind of behavioral surcharge on our free acceptance in the family of Christ. And you can work yourself to death trying to live up to that standard and not do it. Usually we think about building our relationships with God by our own efforts. And it's kind of like there are three basic elements. I, I'm going to call them three grim pills this morning. There are three grim pills. Pills of religion, morality, and spirituality. They're, they're nothing more than three packagings of the same kind of painkiller. Okay, Think about it like, like you've gone to the drugstore. Okay, And you've got religion, morality, and spirituality, and they're going to they're gonna 
take care of you. They're, they're going to be some kind of a painkiller for you. Maybe better said, religion, religion is kind of like the generic, and spirituality and morality, those are like the high-priced name brands, okay? So think about it that way. I don't know why I'm thinking about old age kind of things, aren't I? I'm using a lot of old age. That's, you know, that's what a Medicare card will do for you. <laughs> Go with me. Run with me with this idea. The pain we have, we, the pain we, we want to kill is, is the agony of not being in control of our lives in some way. We try, we try by religion and by morality and by spirituality to gain control of our lives. The apparent purpose of religion is to give us the power to make things happen the way we think they should so that God will bless us, right? I mean, we want to, we want to get rid of that pain. We, we swallow that pill in the same hope that Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, actually. We convince ourselves when it's all said and done that we're the ones in charge, that we're the ones who are managing our lives and creation. And you know what? It didn't work in the garden. It still doesn't work. It's not going to work for us. It just, it never works. We may think that we're practicing religion because God told us to, or somehow if we do what he says, we'll be right. The book of Ephesians is an interesting book in your Bible. When you read Ephesians, you'll see that Ephesians talks about who we are in Christ and spends a lot of time talking about that before it even mentions what we do as a result of being in Christ. We get it backwards. We want to do so that we can be. God calls us to be, and then we will do. The side effect of those three grim pills, though, is always, it's, it's invariably the depressing feeling that if we don't practice, if we don't do what God tells us to do, then God won't be able to help us, or God will get mad at us and decide uh, that he's not going to bless us. Or We, we, we think that we are not going to satisfy God somehow or another. Grace means, the word grace, the whole idea of grace, means that Jesus is, has closed my metaphorical drugstore. I don't have to go take the pill of religion and spirituality and morality. The spiritual life has to do with trusting that the sacrifice and the offering of the good physician is sufficient. And we need to pick up our plastic doctor kits and end the game because we aren't in control. He is. Good works are an indication that the grace of God is at work in our lives, but it's not the gasoline. It's not the fuel. I'm mixing metaphors. Sorry about that. That's what happens when you have grandkids at home all week. You get the idea. If the fuel isn't grace itself, then works are inevitably dead. They're grim pills. They, they, they load us up with the toxins of guilt and, and things that kill our relationship with God. If we get it into our heads that religion and morality are what God desires, then we have the gospel upside down. That's foundational. That's, that's, that's the, that is the, the, the slab that Paul has laid for the gospel 
in the previous five chapters of Galatians. I think it's important that we start there this morning, that we understand that, that, that grace is the thing that changes everything. And then we turn to Galatians 6, 1. And we see the healing that God brings in the Spirit. Galatians 6.1 is kind of like the central trademark of the truly spiritual life, if you will. If anyone is called in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. In the spirit of gentleness, keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. So what's the emphasis in that verse? The emphasis in that verse is on the who and the how of correction. Who is it that needs to be corrected here in the text? Who is it? It's our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not talking about the world outside. We're talking about us. We're talking about, the, it's an in-house deal. The how is beautiful. What is it? It is, the action is, the key action is to restore. That's so different from the sort of thing that the old man, who doesn't live in the grace of the gospel that we've just been talking about, would have done. What would the old man do? If one of us was found with our hand in the cookie jar, we'd rebuke, we'd ridicule, we'd humiliate, we'd chastise, we'd dominate. In other words, when, when a family member is getting caught with their hand in the cookie jar, we're called to restore them, not to penalize. How we treat each other speaks to our spiritual well-being. If we are pharisaical in our tendencies, then those attitudes still come across. Even if we go to one another individually, we'll do, do it in a pharisaical way because the legalistic mindset uh, of the flesh poisons the water at its source. This is so important to the Christian life. This is so important to the life of the body of Christ. Now, you need to hear me and hear me well. We need to offer grace and be, be gentle in, our, in the way we deal with our brothers and sisters in Christ who are caught in sin, whatever that sin may be. But I am not beginning to, to say that we do just overlook sin and that we don't discipline when discipline is necessary. Paul here is telling us that we need to be careful in the way we exercise our discipline. Those, those who feel ridiculed typically disappear from the fellowship in the body of Christ. They, 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 they go away. They don't dare darken the church's door because it's not a safe place. It's full of disapproval and rejection. In reality, the spiritual are those we're, we're, if, if you're truly spiritual, it's like you're one of those who is, like you're on the Appalachian Trail, and you're hiking the Appalachian Trail, you're on the AT, and your bootlaces are untied. But you have an insurance policy in your pocket. We're sinners. We know that we're going to trip up over our own bootlaces, but we also know that we're covered. You get the point? You get the idea, the illustration? Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Church discipline has been misapplied 
has been wrongly practiced on, in, in so many ways. There are so many people who are what I call church damaged by a misapplication of church discipline or by other things that go on in the body of Christ. You know what? New Hope's not perfect. We've not done it perfectly either. Paul's telling us here that w- the way we evidence the fact that we're born again and that, uh, that we are forgiven sinners living in grace is seen in a very concrete way. It's seen in the way we imitate Jesus by our gracious, patient, fruit of the Spirit way of bearing with the burdens and the sins of others and by offering grace and forgiveness just like Jesus did with us. It's not that we have to continue to, to live in, a, in this world in a tit-for-tat kind of relationship where you know things go like, well, well, you did this, so consequently I responded that way. We don't live on that horizontal kind of a plane if we're really born again. True spirituality does not live tit-for-tat. True spirituality works like this. You did that. And though it was wrong, I can and will offer you forgiveness and restoration but I, because I know that that's what Jesus has done for me. I can forgive you. You can be restored because I've been forgiven much. We need to think about that. Correction has its place, but there's also a place for forgiveness. Overlooking um, opportunities for getting even need to be left behind. We live in such a transactional world, it's not even funny. We, we're, we are a, a world full of lawmakers and lawbreakers and lawkeepers, and let's make another rule to live by. I mean, just think about, we have people we pay big money to do that for us in Washington, D.C. We have people that we pay to do that for us in the state house in Tallahassee. We have people we pay to do that for us in Lake County. We have people we pay to do that for us in our HOAs. We're not paying each other to do that in our households, I hope, okay? We are a people who want to live transactionally. If the gospel of grace has penetrated our hearts, we need to look at the sin that's out there and that is real and the brokenness that is there and say, I can forgive you because I have been forgiven so very much by my King Jesus. Jesus has forgiven me. I can grant you grace. Those led by the Spirit know just how much they are in need of grace, that they're only fellow pilgrims on the journey. Proverbs uh, uh, tells us that uh, we're not to reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. We're to reprove a wise man and he will love you. You remember the story, not the story, the incident in Jesus' life when the Pharisees and the scribes bring a woman who's been caught in adultery and and they're standing around her and they've got stones in their hands. They are ready to pummel her with these huge stones and they pause just long enough to ask Jesus a question. They wanted Jesus' opinion and so what do they say? 
What did Jesus say? Jesus said to them, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And you know what happened, right? The accusers left. And the woman caught in adultery was left in the dirt before Jesus. Jesus stands in that vicious circle of our accusers to free us from their deadly threats. And he says to us, Neither do I condemn you. Go therefore and sin no more. His words are restorative. His words, are, are, are they release our hearts from the asphyxiating guilt that we carry around with us. And, and they breathe into us the fresh oxygen of divine grace. That's the way we need to deal with one another, to love one another. The second mark, the second trademark of a truly spiritual life is in the second and third verses of our text here. Jesus says this, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Well, I, I think what Paul's saying is these are the burdens I'd have you bear. Paul's saying to us, not the, the frustrations and the burden of the law, but your neighbor's errors and weaknesses, his sorrows and his sufferings. Restoring somebody out of grace is, is one way of bearing a burden. Another way of, of bearing a burden is to take practical responsibility for each other. There ought to be a mutuality in the body of Christ. There ought to be a, there ought to be a one anothering in the body of Christ that is, that is so dynamic and that is so alive and so, that, so real that we just do it naturally. We need to bear with one another. We need to love one another. We need to greet one another with a holy kiss. We need to, wait, Paul did say that, but maybe not so much. Um, maybe we need to greet one another with grace. I don't think it would be appropriate uh, in our culture and society. But you know what I'm talking about. We need to pray for one another. We need, we need to love one another deeply. I was thinking about that whole idea of mutuality, and I, I've always struggled with the, the phrase out of Genesis chapter 4. You know, in Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel, um, the Lord came to Cain and he says, Where's Abel, your brother? God is, knows where Abel, his brother, is. And um, Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And I thought, the answer to that question is yes, you are. I've often thought it was just curious the way God did that, the way God spoke to them there. I, I don't know if it strikes you as peculiar or not. But Cain tries to wiggle out of responsibility for Abel's welfare. And um, we can't do that for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're responsible for one another. The answer to that question, am I my brother's keepers? Yes. You need to love one another in such a way that you know that you're caring for them to be that listening ear, to be that strong shoulder, to, to be that helping hand. But there's more than that. You see, I think spiritual friendship follows the rhythm of the Holy Spirit's moving and speaking and, and leading and teaching, and, and it leads to spiritual wisdom and to, to, to giving soul care through the gospel. You know, loneliness and sickness and relational pain and sorrow, anxieties, fear, disabilities, depression, all those things are going to stalk you 
and me at some point in our lives. And when they come after your brother or sister in Christ, you need to be able to walk up to that brother or sister and walk with them, him or her, through that process. Because one day, they're going to have to walk through that with you. So as I think back about 2019, I'm really sure of that. Think about the ministries that we've had to the body of Christ here over this last year. Think about the funerals that we've done. Think about the hospitals that we've seen, hospital rooms that we've seen. Think about the shut-ins that we've cared for and loved. Think about the, the diagonal needs that we've met. Think about those things. All the sorrow, all the anxiety, all the, the fears, depression. One day, we're going to need someone to walk alongside us. You know, as I was thinking about my own year, uh, I, I think that there's one thing I'm certain of, and it, this, as the gospel embraces me ever tighter, as it embraces you and me ever tighter, us, we begin to find our rest in the Father's acceptance. And because of that, because of that rest, the urge to continually compare ourselves to others and to continually find fault in ourselves um, ought to diminish. Because what's really happening there as we draw closer uh, to our Heavenly Father, as, as we enjoy His embrace, we quit saying, I'm better than you, and so it's beneath me to help you. And, and, and you know, I don't need your help, and, and I don't want your help with my, my difficulties. We bear one another's burdens, not because it's the right thing to do, but because we have the mind of Christ. And the more we live in Christ's embrace, we understand that, and we want to offer that. I think that's what Paul's talking about there in, in verses 2 and 3 of our text. And I think verses 4 and 5 of our text, the last trademark of the truly spiritual life, is an awareness in the Spirit. Um, 4 and 5 are admittedly a bit confusing when you think about it. Let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will in, in himself alone uh, and not his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. How, how can we be told to bear and carry our own loads after just being told in 2 and 3 of the same passage to carry another's burdens and not be boastful? I, I'm a little confused by that, okay, admittedly. So I, I wrestled with that. Um, I, I, I started writing, I started working on this sermon, I got to tell you, about three weeks ago uh, during the Christmas season. You know, I'd pick it up for a little bit and uh, put it back down because I had other Christmas responsibilities to take care of. And and, you know, I, but I wanted to work on this while uh, I had the opportunity because I knew that I'd had family and I'd have a busy time. And I kept coming to this passage and I kept thinking, I don't really understand this. You know, I, I just, I kept wrestling with it and, and thinking on it and chewing on it. And finally, I, I read it in another translation, which I should have done, I admit, I should have done earlier on, um, and uh, just to get a little, a little clarity on it. Um, what Paul's, Paul's not contradicting himself. Paul's making a point here about awareness and responsibility. So let me read it in the other translation. Instead of comparing and judging, um, we need to uh, uh, check our own actions and motivations. Paul says, 
pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done, and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. For if, or for, we are each responsible for our own conduct. That's the NLT. That's not usually the place I go for comment and that kind of thing, but here I think they got it right. What Paul is saying in essence here is that each of us stands before an audience of one, our Heavenly Father, and that all that really matters is what he thinks and what he's doing in us. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. What does God think? I think Peter learned that lesson on the beach right after Jesus' resurrection. You remember the story? Peter and the other disciples had kind of lost heart. They had uh, decided they would just go back and go fishing, which is what any good outdoorsman would do when he's confused about what to do. Peter and his pals, the other disciples, are fishing, and Peter's throwing fish on the fire to uh, cook fish. And Jesus, resurrected Jesus, is there. And Jesus is talking to, John says in his gospel, the disciple whom he loved. He's talking to John. And Jesus is, is talking to John. And Peter is, is kind of being himself. He, he takes a great interest in what Jesus is saying about John's ministry. And so when, when Peter tried to poke his nose into that conversation, Jesus rebukes Peter. It's kind, of, it's kind of like, it's kind of abrupt. Jesus simply, in John 21, verse 22, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you, Peter? Follow me. That's exactly what Peter needed to hear at that moment. In other words, Peter, I'm John's shepherd as well as yours, so let me lead both of you as I will. Peter understood. He's standing before an audience of one. He's got to answer to Jesus. Jesus is doing something over here with John that he's not doing with Peter. Jesus is doing something with Richard that he's not doing with Fred. Okay? We have to answer to our Heavenly Father. We don't, his, his attention is fully devoted to us and that's really all we need we don't have to pry into what jesus is doing in somebody else's life before we move on by the way look at the look at the text carefully there it says for each will have to bear his own load okay i'm, I'm not trying to go technical on you but that's future tense okay uh that, that's to say on the last day Everything is going to be unveiled and shown for what it is. What we do is important not because it saves, but because it accentuates the one in whom we've trusted. I think that's the key to understanding those verses. Everything else we do is going to be worthless in its essence. Paul is asking us to test our own work and see if we are truly walking by the Spirit before an audience of one. Did you get it? test our own work to see if we're walking by the Spirit before an audience of one. You've got the foundation of grace. 
you've got a superstructure that you have been building as a Christian, as a believer, as a disciple of Jesus. And Lord willing, you are growing and that, that superstructure is being built up. And you are doing that before your Heavenly Father. You're not looking at your neighbor on one side or the other or across the street. You're looking to your Heavenly Father. You know, when a carpenter builds a series of trusses for a building or for a house, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't build each one by taking the measurements from the one he built right before it. You know, you don't build one and then you say, oh, that's good, and you go measure and get your dimensions again from the second one, and then you go to the, the third one and you get them off the second one and off the fourth one, you know, and you keep, you will have the most crooked structure on the planet if you do that. I can prove that. My house is not crooked, I assure you. I had someone else build the trusses. Um, what you do is you go to the blueprint. What you do is you follow the directions. You go to the Word. You go to Jesus. You look to God. Comparing ourselves to others is always going to give us skewed results. We can end up judging ourselves harshly. We can end up thinking we should be better than we are or that we're something that we're, we are when we're not. And, and we'll just be all out of square. We'll be all out of plumb. We'll lock ourselves or others into a prison of shame and guilt and impossible expectations even while we idolize some image of a super-Christian. What are you building on? Are you building on that foundation of grace? Are you looking to the one? Thank goodness Christ's power is made perfect in our weakness because we're weak in him. When you look at Jesus, I think you'll discover two things. You'll know that you don't measure up. You'll know that that, that board stretcher needs to come out and be applied to that wood, piece of wood. You'll need to grow. But you'll also know not only do you not measure up, but that you are deeply loved. That Jesus loves you deeply. Knowing your own wretchedness not only keeps you near the cross, it changes your attitude toward the inadequacies of other people around you. Measure yourself by the one. Resting in Jesus' love frees us to love. Nobody measures up. We need to quit striving against irresistible grace. The more we gaze on Jesus, our only hope of salvation, the more that characterizes our lives by grace. Because our relationship with one another is because we have a relationship with him. Keep your focus. That's what true spirituality is really all about living before the one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask you this morning to help us to take 